chapter 24, and I think we'll just read verses 1 through 5. Uh, there's more to it, and I'll address more of it, but, you know, for the sake of time, reading 18 verses feels like a, a lot this morning. Um, I came in this morning, and uh, Blair asked me how I was doing, and I told her I had spent the entire week preoccupied with this chapter. And this morning, I was in the office and literally just out loud, I just groaned. Because there's there's just so much happening here. And Blair said something profound. She was just being nice, I'm sure. But it was profound. She's like, well, that's probably because you're doing something right. And I was like, man, that's good. That's a good word, right? So it's like a simple thing. Like Deuteronomy is one of these books that makes us groan a bit. That's the reality of it. But the cool thing about it, what we've been focusing on, is, is that Jesus had grown through Deuteronomy. He knew Deuteronomy. He had been shaped by Deuteronomy. And we have this opportunity to be shaped by this book. So that's what we want to invite you into. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read. Father, we thank you for for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to be gathered around it. And we pray that you would speak powerfully through it. That you would draw us unto yourself. That we would be stirred to worship. God, where our hearts have been hardened or cold, where we've been wearied by our circumstances and the things that we're facing, God, we pray that you would bring your comfort, bring your peace through the hope of your gospel, the reality of your kingdom made known. Stir something within us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of, of chapter 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, Because he finds something indecent about her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And if a man is recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. The word of the Lord. So last week, we were in Deuteronomy 12. We were looking uh, at this this idea of how we understand God, how we relate to God, and ultimately how that shapes our worship, how we as the people of God are supposed to worship. And, And once you get to chapter 19, there's this shift. The question becomes, how does what we believe about God and how we worship, how does that shape the way we relate to our neighbor? I probably need to change this out. If you guys will bring me that handheld, it's just popping again. So in, in chapter 24 today, the focus is on our neighbor, right? But particularly on the neighbor we have who is oppressed. And it begins with marriage, which is, is kind of surprising. Because obviously with this, this huge focus on the, the idea of neighbor, now we're, we're, we're beginning with a conversation on on women. But the point of all of this in in chapter 24 is that the law 
is doing more than we realize. The law in this context is ultimately meant to, to break the cycle of oppression and of poverty and of violence that is so common in the ancient world and in our world, for that matter. So in this chapter, we're reflecting on our relationship to those who've been oppressed, to our neighbor. But I think as we read Old Testament laws, we cannot help but ask the question. I'm sure you've asked this question or at least thought this at some point during this series. Like, what does this mean for me? Like now, as a modern-day follower of Jesus, right, we all recognize that the law is not some means by which we come to faith and are saved. We recognize that that has nothing to do with it, right? We recognize that we don't live by these laws any longer for the main part. What does this mean now for me as a modern-day follower of Jesus? Because we hear these things, and like you'll hear me stand up here and say, like, the law was actually a means of, of liberating the oppressed, it was a means of, of, of caring for the marginalized, of those who'd been forgotten in their society. And yet, you can't help but think, Kyle, have you read some of these laws? Some of these lo laws sound pretty oppressive and violent themselves. Like if you read the whole thing, the sense you get is that if, if Israel had actually lived the law perfectly, if I were to attempt today to live this law perfectly, my life would look pretty oppressive. People would probably be bothered by some of the things I was doing. Certainly in our context, we would feel this way. And this is not a thing that was lost on Israel. Israel wrestled with the law. They continued to wrestle with what it meant. The rabbis, if you ever read the rabbis and the way they understand these things, they're wrestling through what the law means in their context. Moses was asking the question in Deuteronomy. Jesus was asking the question later in the Sermon on the Mount, I think. The thing we, we have to be wrestling with in books like Deuteronomy is what are we going to do with the law? What does it mean to live according to the law? What does that even look like for us? Obviously, it doesn't look like living one by one, requirement after requirement by these, these rules. In the, the Sermon on the Mount, there's something Jesus says, and, and Jonathan mentioned it a, a few weeks ago, and I really think it needs to guide our conversation today. Jesus, just before he begins to reinterpret the law for this crowd that's sitting in front of him, he makes this statement. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Like, that's an idea we have to take seriously. Because... Even though we might feel like Jesus is abolishing the law, he says he's come to fulfill it. That's what Moses is trying to do in, in Deuteronomy, trying to teach them what the fulfillment of the law looks like. It's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the question I, I want us to, to kind of toy around with today. How does one fulfill the law? How is Jesus doing it? What does it look like for the church to live into this reality. And so what I want to do is, is something that, it's not easy, okay? Um, to read Deuteronomy 24 alongside Matthew 5 and what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Because again, remember, we're calling this Deuteronomy Jesus' favorite book. He quotes from it constantly, over and over again. He comes back to Deuteronomy. And ask through listening to Jesus, what does it mean to fulfill the law? How is Jesus by his life fulfilling it. 
And what does that mean for us as believers now, right? So Deuteronomy begins with this kind of somewhat trashy daytime TV talk show scenario, right? It feels a little bit like the host is now trying to help this couple that has come. Their marriage is real messed up, and everybody knows it, right? You've, like, heard of Maury Povich, but this is, like, Maury Povich's cousin Moses. And, uh, and the scenario is that a man has divorced his wife who subsequently goes and is, is remarried, but she's rejected by her second husband as well. This, by the way, is not unfamiliar territory. It happens. You know stories where these things kind of play out. And Moses, in this scenario, is adamant that the first husband cannot take back this first wife of his. He's divorced her. He can't have her like maybe as like a, a second wife. Maybe he decides she can be like his subordinate wife. He's found a new one now, and she can just be kind of second fiddle. No, it can't happen. And I'm sure you're sitting here listening to me going like, okay, so we're going to talk about divorce, but this is the scenario we're talking about? Of all the things we could discuss about divorce, this is where we're going to. Somehow Moses feels strongly about this. How does that matter? It matters because if you know anything about the, the Torah, right, only twice does divorce come up. Once in Exodus 21 and once here. It doesn't come up a lot. But Moses, on the other hand, is seeing it come up over and over again in the life of these families. In the camp, he's seeing this come up over and over again. So when he sees this kind of scenario happening, Moses has lived this. Moses can't stand there and ask like a divorce attorney who's helping people, well, did you present her with the right piece of paper? Did you go through the, the right legal procedures? No, he can't do that. That's not the way he functions. Moses is asking a much harder question of the law. What does fulfilling the law look like in a broken family? What does righteousness look like when a family is falling apart? Not just what's the procedure, but what does it look like to be righteous, to fulfill the law, to honor God in the midst of a really broken moment? See, Moses doesn't see the law like some simple set of instructions. Step one, step two, step three, and you're finished. Like Moses sees the law like Ikea instructions, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you do, surely. No, nobody smiles. I'm like, oh, you guys all have more money than me. I get it. I totally understand. That's what it is. Because I have lived with some of this, right? If you've ever put together Ikea furniture, you know what I'm talking about. It's all these pictures, and you're going like, what am I supposed to do with this? And you're, you're interpreting these, these pictures. The law is more difficult. It's not as cut and dry as we might have imagined, and they never saw it that way. It had to be reinterpreted and, and adapted to certain very complicated scenarios, right? Moses wants to understand the heart of these laws. Why did God say that? What is the wisdom in this, and how do I, I speak into this very particular situation? How do I apply that into this situation, right? So here's what's happening culturally at the time. What's going on in the background that Moses knows that you and I aren't as connected to? Moses knows well what happened in Exodus 21. He's the one who's given them this law on divorce. And in Exodus 21, it is very clear that divorce is permissible. It's okay. It's completely legal, and there's a process. 
but there's not a lot of detail given about how it should look. You give a certificate of divorce. What else, though? Like that, that seems pretty simplistic. And it's like Moses is, is trying to point out in Deuteronomy 24, like, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Yes, divorce is permissible. Everything is permissible, Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. And it's like Moses is trying to show, like, not everything about this is beneficial. Moses is trying to put in place these boundaries where there's not as much clarity in Exodus 21. In Deuteronomy 24, he's trying to speak to a specific situation. Because here's what happens. Divorce in the ancient world looks a very particular way. The prerogative is the man's. The man has all control in this scenario. The woman has none. I don't know if you guys caught that. If a woman becomes displeasing to her husband, it's never the other way around. If a man becomes displeasing to his wife, no. Not a scenario that ever plays out. A woman doesn't get to choose to end her marriage. That's not how it works. The woman has no real say. And so, because there's not much clarity, men took a whole lot of liberties when it came to divorce. They did what they wanted. Moses knows this. Moses recognizes the way that divorce is being practiced in the ancient world is oppressive to women. He sees it. And so he starts putting these safeguards in place, some boundaries in place. He recognizes that a woman who is divorced is without any means of provision, without any means of livelihood or survival. She's put in a very compromised position. It's a problem. And all based on, sometimes, the stupid whims of a man. It's a problem. And if you notice, there are a few words that are being used that are kind of like a clue in Hebrew to to what is happening, right? It says, if a woman becomes displeasing to her husband because he finds something indecent about her. The Hebrew actually says it a little bit differently. It's not the woman who becomes displeasing. It's if a man marries a woman and the woman does not find favor with her husband. Another translation, another word we'd use there is grace. If a woman is married to this man and she does not find grace with her husband. That's what we're translating as displeasing. It's really the man's action as well, right? It's not just that the woman has done something indecent to become displeasing to him. It's also that the man has no favor any longer for his wife. He has no grace for her any longer. Now, the scenario is because she has done something indecent. That's an even harder phrase to try and translate in Hebrew. It means literally the nakedness of a matter, the nakedness of a thing. That sounds kind of scandalous, right? So obviously the the traditional sort of assumption would be that it's something immoral, it's something unsavory, unfaithful. And it's easy for us to think that's the focus here. But the root of the issue that Moses focuses on is that the man lacks grace. The man has no favor for his wife any longer. He once had favor for his wife. He has no favor for her any longer. No grace any longer. This is the focus. It's as much about his lack of grace as it is about whatever things she may have done, right? And that's why Moses will focus on the man in this section. You notice this. Watch this. You get another clue of it when he goes on to say that a newly married man can't be sent off to war. Instead, he must stay home for a year. Why? To bring joy to his wife. Moses is valuing women in a society that generally oppresses them. He's advocating for women 
in a place where they are often forgotten, where they're often oppressed. A husband can't just have his wife back. He can't just control her. He doesn't get to have her when he wants her and and send her away when he doesn't. That's not how it works. This would defile the land, he says. You don't get to control her this way. That's not common. That's not the way many people saw it, and it was something they wrestled with for a long time. Now, what we didn't read is that Moses takes this, and then he steps into something else, a conversation on the poor. Nothing in the law says that you can't lend money to the poor. In fact, the law encourages you to lend money to the poor. The law also doesn't forbid you to take collateral from the people that you make loans to. Moses says, you're obviously going to take collateral. People were doing it. They chose to to embrace that. And Moses says something. When you give someone a loan, don't take their millstone as collateral. And you guys are like, oh, yeah, it's millstone. Yeah, totally. I get it. Yeah. The millstone is, is how they grind grain. It's how they make their money. The poor often did that kind of task. Don't take their millstones from them as collateral for your loan because they have no way of paying you back. They can't survive. Don't do such a thing, he says. He says, don't take their cloak and not give it back to them before the nighttime so that they can stay warm. It's their survival, right? He goes on to say that that immigrants, widows, orphans should be provided for. How? Uh, A familiar process. You know, the, the idea of leaving the edges of your field unharvested. But Moses in Deuteronomy 24 wants to be real specific about saying, even what falls out of your hands while you're carrying your sheaves, don't pick it up. Leave it. Leave something for the poor, for the immigrant, for the widow in the land. He values the life of the poor. Moses even values the life of children. Again, in the ancient world, not common. Children in the ancient world are seen as liabilities. They're seen as expendable most of the time. There's not a whole lot of value attached to their lives. Moses says that a parent should not die for the sin of their child. That's easy enough to to recognize. But what he says next is that a child should not die for the sin of their father. One thing is obvious, the other is not as common. Because it happened all the time in the ancient world that children were dying for the sins of their fathers. Not just in the sense that they died coincidentally or because of some terrible thing their father did and it all kind of came back to haunt them. That's not what it means. It's talking about literal dying. In Babylonian law, you guys probably remember this from history, one of the few things you might have learned about ancient law is the Code of Hammurabi. Maybe? Anybody? You remember this? Babylonian law? In Babylonian law, because this eye-for-an-eye concept is there, if a man murders someone else's son, he is not given the death penalty. The man himself, the one who's murdered someone else's son, is not given the death penalty, but because of this reciprocal idea of eye-for-eye and tooth-for-tooth, the man's son is now given the death penalty. A son for a son. The son did nothing wrong, but he has to die. And Moses says, it's cruel and it should not be this way in Israel. He values the life of children. Not many people are doing this. It's it's different. He recognizes that that kind of violence, it creates this ugly cycle where everybody's always killing one another's sons. How can you ever stop that? God's people are supposed to be this, this calming voice in the midst of a violent whirlwind, right? That's what's happening. 
But you go, wait a second, Kyle. It's not just Babylonian law that says eye for an eye and, and tooth for a tooth. Leviticus says it. Exodus says it. Deuteronomy says it. So would it not be right? Isn't the concept true there? A son for a son. Why should that not be the case based upon this? Wouldn't such a thing be legal and right? And I think in Deuteronomy, what Moses is trying to help us see is that we have to get beyond this scratching of the surface of the law. There's more there. It's not about just simple black and white concepts that are applied the same every time. He wants you to start thinking about the substance of this thing, the wisdom of this thing, the heart of this thing, and reflecting on it in a different way, right? Because here's the reality. You can find a way to live the law, to meet its requirements perfectly, and still be unjust and oppressive and violent. And Moses says that is not fulfilling the law. That's a lie. It's the appearance of righteousness, but not the thing itself. And we of all people, we know it. We've been in church with people like that. Maybe we ourselves are people like that. We have the appearance of righteousness. But the reality is it's not there. What does it mean to actually fulfill the law? And I think if we're asking the question like simply, like just like what does the word fulfillment mean in this room? Someone says something and then they do it. They make a promise and they deliver on that promise. Amazon fulfills your order. This is the way it works. This is the way we think about it. It's kind of like uh, the way math worked for me in high school and college. I don't know if you guys, I don't know how it was for you. I think it was algebra for me. I was probably 14. And I remember still the day that my teacher put the quadratic equation on the whiteboard. You guys remember the quadratic equation? Maybe I should have, like, thrown that up on the board. Some of you teachers know exactly what I'm talking about. You guys look it up, you know. Not now. Don't Google it now. Look later. Quadratic equation. It goes up on the board, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, so the course of mathematics has now changed for me. From here on out, I will memorize formulas. I will memorize equations. I will memorize theorems, and then I will plug numbers into them very neatly. You give me the numbers, I will plug them into the machine, and we will be good. What that formula means, what that equation means, I have no idea. How that equation works, I have no idea, but I can memorize stuff. That's how I survived math. You memorize the things, you plug the numbers in. It's like a calculator, man. This is great. I just fill in the blanks. This is kind of the way we see the law. And it's easy for us to dismiss it because that's all it is. You're just filling in the blanks. God tells you what to do, and you just kind of fill in the blanks in your life. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Jewish establishment at the time had gotten to this point. They were so desperate to see the Messiah come, so desperate to see the kingdom of God come, right, that they knew, the Pharisees especially, if you want God to respond, how do you get him to respond? You live a righteous life. And so that's what they were doing. They were just filling in the blanks, plugging the numbers into the equation. And they concluded. You hear it from the rich young ruler, Jesus tells him, oh, well, you just need to, to follow the law. And he says, all these things I have done, teacher. I've done all this stuff. I have met the requirements of the law, and I am therefore righteous. And Jesus says, oh, interesting. Well, why don't you give away all of your things? He's not fulfilled the law. He doesn't know what it is to fulfill the law. He has this surface-level understanding of the law. He's just scratching the surface. This is what a lot of us imagine when we think about fulfilling the law. 
When Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it, the sense that we get sometimes is that that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus has just done it even more perfectly. Jesus never messes it up. Jesus has done it perfectly to a T. Remember, Jesus is perfect. He's sinless, right? That's what he's talking about here. Sure, but there's so much more. In the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's what Jesus is trying to clarify. Jesus is saying, I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy who's going to satisfy all of these requirements perfectly for you. I'm not going to do it the way you imagined I was going to do it. There's more to it. I'm not going to do all of this to your satisfaction. Because think about this. If fulfilling the law, when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, if what he means is he's going to meet its requirements perfectly, then why does everybody accuse him of being a lawbreaker? Jesus breaks the law constantly. This is their their tension with him, their frustration with him. He eats with sinners and he becomes ritually impure by doing so. He violates the Sabbath. He heals people on multiple occasions and seems to encourage others the same. He's a lawbreaker. He doesn't fulfill the law in that way. That's why he begins the Sermon on the Mount clarifying. He says, please, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I know what it looks like. I know I seem like I'm a lawbreaker. I feel like you're assuming I'm a law abolisher, but that's not me. I've come to fulfill the law, but fulfilling the law means something different to Jesus than it does to us very often. The word in, in Greek, uh, you know, sometimes our translations, they fail us. It doesn't work very well. It's hard to, to find a perfect word for this Greek word. But our word fulfill, it comes from the Greek, really. It's all connected to it. It means literally to, to fill something full, to fill it completely, right? How often does that happen, right? The Greek word just works out. Our, our way of defining things works out perfectly. Jesus fills it completely. He fills it whole, all the way to the rim, right? The sense that you get is like the law has become flat. It's become empty. It's become lifeless for the people of God because they're just scratching at the surface. They're just filling in the blanks. The law is like a a glass half empty. And Jesus says, I've come to fill it up. The law is like an empty thing for us, but Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfills the law like a, a blood transfusion fills a dying body. He fills it up. He gives life to what has been dead and empty and hopeless. So here's what Jesus does. He says, you've heard it said. And he goes back to Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I'm telling you, Don't divorce. Jesus is saying, don't take divorce so lightly as it has been taken. This is a big conversation at the time of Jesus' life. It got him in a lot of trouble for saying that. He goes on. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Sure sounds like he's breaking the law, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you. If you've even looked at someone lustfully, you've already done it. Fulfilling the law for Jesus 
means going deeper beneath the surface of the thing. Sure, there are plenty of people who can say, well, I've never committed adultery. I am not divorced. I don't hit people. I tend to be, to be pretty good about it. I, I never hit them at least unless they hit me first, right? Jesus wants to go beneath the surface, though, to the root of our adultery. He wants to go to the root of our divorce. What causes these sorts of things? What causes our violence? He wants to go deeper, right? To our lust and our unforgiveness and our anger. That's what Jesus wants to address. That's what the law was always meant to address. But it was easier instead to just scratch at the surface of the thing, to have the appearance of righteousness. But Jesus doesn't just have the appearance of righteousness. Jesus is fulfilling the law completely. But it sure sounds like he's abolishing the law. Jesus, I know you said you didn't come to abolish the law, but it sure sounds like you're throwing it out and giving us something else. Now, it doesn't end there, especially this conversation on divorce. On another occasion in Matthew, Matthew 19, a group of Pharisees come to Jesus because they've heard the kinds of things he's saying, and they say to Jesus, Teacher, is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, any kind of reason whatsoever. This is a huge conversation at the time. There was a school of thought that said, absolutely you can. A man can divorce his wife, and the the traditional one that everybody laughs about is that even if she doesn't cook like he likes, you can hand her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus is not okay with this. They know he's not okay with this, and they think they can trap him. Because they know what the law says. The law says, on the surface, absolutely, send her away. At whatever whim, whenever you decide, send her away. The law says yes. And they're expecting that Jesus is going to have to confront that. But Jesus won't. He does something different. He won't answer the question the way they want him to. Because Jesus hasn't come to satisfy some surface requirement. He's come to fulfill the law. And so he says... Haven't you read, for this reason a man will leave his parents and be united, and they will become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate it. You've heard it. Every wedding you've ever been to, right? This is where Jesus goes. You want me to go to Moses. Jesus recognizes it, and he says, excuse me, Moses gave you that command because of your hardness of heart. Remember, Deuteronomy 24, what causes the divorce? Not just the woman's indecency, but the husband lacks grace. His heart has been hardened toward his wife. That's part of the problem as well. That's as much of the cause as anything, a hardness of heart. Jesus says that is what creates this scenario. Now, does that mean Jesus is condemning you or anybody you know for divorce? No, that's not what Jesus is trying to do. That's not his interest here. He's trying to make us think differently about divorce in a world where it's become very cavalier. Jesus is showing us what the fulfillment of the law actually looks like. So instead of going where they want him to, he could easily have gone back to Exodus 21 or Deuteronomy 24. Instead, he goes back to Genesis. Jesus says, you want to talk about divorce? You want to talk about relationships? You want to talk about marriage? Let's not talk about Deuteronomy or Exodus. Let's go to Genesis. He takes you back to the garden to the relationship, the intimacy that existed between God and his people from the beginning, the intimacy that existed between Adam and Eve in the beginning, right? That's what he wants you to think of. 
Because fulfilling the law isn't about doing what is legally required and scratching at the surface of the thing and filling in the blanks. Fulfilling the law, ultimately, the whole purpose of the thing is to bring us back to that kind of intimacy with God, to bring us back to that kind of intimacy with one another. That was the point. Jesus says, you want to talk about about these surface-level requirements, and you've lost sight of the intimacy. You've lost sight of the relationship that God has in mind, right? Fulfilling the law is about bringing us back into that intimacy, back into the presence of God from the beginning that was there, restoring the image of God within us. That's what it was supposed to be about, undoing our violence and our lust and our anger and our unforgiveness. But instead, it's just been this surface-level thing where we're just filling in blanks. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, Jesus is bringing us back to that. Not just giving us instructions on when we can or can't do something. Not inviting us to evaluate our lives on this thing and saying, well, Jesus' life was evaluated on it and my life will be evaluated on it. We function this way so often and Jesus is saying, that's not who I am. It's not even how Moses saw it. Moses was pushing against that. Now, here's, here's where I started to groan this morning. So what? That's, that's like a nice thing. It's, a, it's a, a good fact to know. Maybe you learned something. I've learned things this week, but so what? Like what in the world? I was sitting there in the bed with, with April last night going like, what in the world am I supposed to give these people from this? Right? Because I think there are two ways we go from this, right? Some of us will hear this and we'll say, okay, what you're telling me and what Jesus seems to be telling me, although he says he's not abolishing the law, the truth is the law is irrelevant to my experience. Old Testament law has nothing to do with me or how I'm supposed to live. Even Jesus is not expecting me to live according to those things, right? If Jesus doesn't meet the requirements of the law perfectly in their eyes, then why would I be able to meet the requirements of the law perfectly in their eyes? I'm not going to attempt. The law is is completely irrelevant to my experience. And the next conclusion we make a lot of times is that the law also is kind of unrealistic because what Jesus does is he makes it, Even harder, it seems like. Oh, it's not just about not committing adultery. It's about not even lusting. Oh, jeez. I mean, nothing I can do with it. I remember sitting in a a coffee shop with a girl years ago that had been in our church for a long time, walking away from faith, and she looks at me and she says, the ethic of the kingdom is unrealistic. The idea of something like celibacy, it's unrealistic. It was very honest. And I totally understood. I could empathize with what she's saying. It's not easy. It's unrealistic is how it feels. It feels impossible. And so what do we decide? I'm just going to live my life the way I live my life. And thank God Jesus has fulfilled the law for me. Like, I value the ethic of the kingdom. I like the kinds of things Jesus is saying. But at the end of the day, if someone hits me, I'm going to hit them back. If someone hits my kid, I'm going to tell my kid, hit them back. If someone wants my money, I'm going to say, no, my money is precious to me. It's unrealistic. The idea, 
that I could be freed of something like anger or lust. It's, it's, it's unrealistic. That's what startled me about it. Self-control, it's unrealistic because here's what we long for more than anything else. We recognize something is wrong with our world. We recognize the problem of violence. We see war playing out all around us. And we see that as a problem, but we don't see our own anger. We don't want to talk about my anger. Jesus does, though. We recognize the problem of the way some men treat their wives. We don't want to talk about our lust, though. We don't want to talk about our hardened hearts. Jesus wants to get deep down into the thing. And it's not because he's angry with you. It's not because he's trying to make you miserable. It's because he actually loves you. It's because he actually loves his good creation and he wants to bring it back to that intimacy that was there in the beginning, to what God always intended for it. The other mistake people make is maybe they don't say it's irrelevant and unrealistic. They say, well, Jesus did kind of intensify the law, right? It did just get a lot more intense. And so what it means to be a disciple is to try harder. I got to try harder, right? And so we, we sit here the rest of our lives monitoring ourselves. I can't be so angry. I can't be so lustful. I can't be so unforgiving and bitter. And we spend our lives going down a list, trying to make sure that we get more things right than we do wrong. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, I'm not even living my life that way. Jesus is trying to get beneath the surface. Jesus didn't abolish the law and give you a whole new, more intense law that you ought to live by. Jesus says, I came to fill it up completely. God always expected that this is the way it would go. That he would have to be the one who would fulfill the law. That we would be incapable of it. There's this uh, passage, Jeremiah 3. We don't, we don't have time. I wish we had time. Jeremiah 3 quotes Deuteronomy 24 exactly, word for word. The beginning of it, Jeremiah says, If a man divorces his wife, just like Moses, can he go back to her again? And Jeremiah says, No, it would defile the land straight from the mouth of Moses in Deuteronomy 24. But if you read down a bit further, you get deeper into chapter 3, you hear God himself say, Return to me, O faithless wife, and I will be your husband. Just like Hosea, same scenario, right? God calling back his faithless wife, okay? That's beautiful. But isn't it breaking the law? Moses said, you don't go back to a wife once you've sent her away. Israel has been sent away for their brokenness and their sin and their indecency. They have become displeasing to Yahweh. And yet, he says, come back, faithless wife, and I will be your husband. It sure looks like God is abolishing the law. And in reality, he's fulfilling it. It was always going to look this way. When Jesus goes to the cross for a crime he didn't commit, and he refuses to defend himself, he won't ever accuse them of what they're doing. He won't ever speak up. It sure looks like Jesus is abolishing the law. If the concept is an eye for an eye, how do you see that in the cross? Jesus is dying for something someone else did. A child should not die because of something the Father did. And yet Jesus is dying 
because of the will of his father. His father has chosen this for him. It sure feels like he's abolishing the law, but he's not. Jesus says from the beginning, I have not come to abolish it. This is what fulfilling the law looks like. And if Jesus has fulfilled the law, then it creates this whole different experience, a more nuanced way of being a disciple where the law is not just irrelevant and unrealistic to me and I completely live according to whatever I think is best at the moment, or this other experience where I'm I'm self-righteous and I'm trying to walk perfectly, it frees me instead. As one who knows Christ has fulfilled the law, I'm opened up to this whole new way, being able to pursue what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount with the hope that even as I fail, it does not matter Every time I fail, my hardened heart is being softened by the Spirit. That's the sense I'm given. The life of a disciple is not this other thing that we've imagined it to be. Every time I fail, my lustful heart is becoming grateful instead. Every time I fail, I'm invited to see things differently, right? My angry hands liberated to love my enemy to forgive those who've hurt me. This is the picture we're given. Jesus is inviting us in the Sermon on the Mount to to step beyond just the surface, right? To get beneath the surface to something more than that, into the deeper life of, of following him, what it looks like to actually be a disciple, beyond the appearance of being righteous to the thing itself into the deeper reality of life-changing intimacy with the Father. That's what we're being invited into. The other thing would be easier, but Jesus wants you to have the thing that's better. This is what he's inviting us into. And as we come to the table this morning, as the band comes and we move to this, I realize this. Again, this is why I was groaning this morning. I realize this is complex. It'd be much easier if I'd just given you like three simple points that you could walk away with. But the question we have to ask ourselves is like, what does it look like to stop scratching at the surface of these requirements for our lives and really beginning to ask the question of what does it look like to be righteous in the midst of these really broken situations I find myself in? Because it's more complicated than just this black and white application of something we've seen in the Bible. It's more complicated. And are we willing to do that? Or are we satisfied with just the appearance of righteousness? Are we stepping into that? That's what we want to invite you into in this moment. Um, You'll be free to to come and and tear off a piece of bread, to grab a cup, and then you can move back uh, toward your seats. I'll come back up and and lead us through all of this. But, But consider this. Wrestle with these things the way Jesus was wrestling with them, the way that Moses is wrestling with them. There's this cool opportunity for us to step into something different than maybe we have, to understand what it means to be a disciple differently. Now let's pray. God, I I thank you for your law. I just hear the psalmist saying that your law is is good. That your law is, is sweet to the taste. That your commands, that your precepts are are good. And though they feel irrelevant and unrealistic to us, though we sometimes are satisfied with just checking off items on a list that make us feel better about ourselves, you're inviting us into something different. We praise you that 
that you have fulfilled the law and not in the way that we would have. You've done something truly unique. Your kingdom is unlike any other we've ever known. And we praise you, God. We pray that you would, would stir something within us, Lord, that we would be stirred to, to deeper discipleship, that we would be changed, that you would bring us back to that intimacy that you've desired for us from the beginning. With you and with one another, with the marginalized and the oppressed around us, yeah, would you help us to see what this looks like with our neighbor, with our spouse, with our children? Yeah, give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.